Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, let's see, a couple of plugs. I did a uh, live stream podcast for episode number 100 of the Sensibly Speaking podcast, and that is now posted. And that kind of uh, had some nice announcements and some uh, word on a few things and some things I was talking about as far as my Basics of Scientology series that has now gone uh, up in, um, in, in all its glory with the first episode on Study Tech. Uh, now we're not just into intro stuff and beginning stuff and, and, you know, some of the videos that I made earlier about, you know, some broad things about Scientology, but now going into the precise points of the tech. And, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with that video. Um, if you didn't watch the podcast uh, stream or see it since I posted it yesterday, I'd, I'd check it out because it's also got uh, me interacting with, uh, with a lot of folks and answering questions. So if you're into me answering questions about things, then that is a good podcast for you guys to check out. Um, so now let's go ahead and get started on this week's Q&A episode. Here we go. California Cobra. What do you think of these doomsday type channels here on YouTube? I saw a video last week where a guy shows a bunch of different underground tunnel entrances near a Walmart and it kind of worried me, especially after the closing of several Walmart stores for, quote, plumbing issues, quote, and seeing armored guards and other government agency cars in the parking lot. This world has become a scary place. All right, well, I am certainly the last person who is going to debate that the world is a scary place. I agree with you that there are a number of things in the world that are quite terrifying, starting uh, right here in the United States with uh, the current individual occupying the Oval Office and spreading out from there to, uh, you know, terrorism and, and you know, atrocities and human rights violations in various places around the world. Uh, there are a lot of reasons and things to find out and about in our environment that are not fun to know about, that are not, uh, you know, great examples of our humani humanity and, uh, um, you know, beneficial actions that people take. Uh, but, I, I, but I also know, statistically speaking, that the world is becoming a safer place. And I know that um, there, for, for every example you can find of crazy nonsense going on in the world, you can find really on the order of, you know, five, six, seven examples of some really good stuff that's going on, whether it's in your own immediate environment or in your city or in your state or uh, country, right, or uh, somewhere, you know, else around the world. In other words, the point is that, that, yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff that goes on in the world, and there's a lot of people that like to talk about that stuff. But there's also a ton more good stuff that goes on in the world, and a lot of people don't seem to want to talk about that. Um, but it's there, and it's there to be seen, and it's there to be found, right? And so at first, I just wanted to make that point. Um, you know, I'm kind of optimistic by nature anyway, so I might start, you know, looking or assuming or having a bias in the direction of, you know, positivity, but it's, you know, how I choose to look at the world and, uh, you know, and like I said, statistically speaking, I have some facts on my side as to why I might have that viewpoint and why I think others should too. Now, I've certainly had my fair share of things to say about conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones and people who I feel 
unduly profit by creating fear and terror in people. Um, and by unduly profit, I mean people who are, you know, using their platform to not only create an environment or an, an attitude of distrust and fear and paranoia, um, but who then, you know, uh, make a, a substantial amount of money doing so. Um, that's selling fear, right? And sure, if you have something that, if there's a situation that is truly dangerous, that is truly something that we, as you know, that everybody should be aware of, um, then of course, you know, it's kind of anyone's responsibility to get that information out there in any way that they can and share that information with the world. Uh, that's kind of how I view my channel, right? Now, of course, you know, somebody could, and the Church of Scientology has, pointed the finger at me and other critics of Scientology as, well, you're just trying to profit from that, you're just in it to make the money, which of course is not true. I, I started this channel before uh, with, with no idea of ever, um, you know, doing anything like this with any kind of uh, money-making, you know, uh, goal in mind. And, um, and really what happened with me was it evolved into, I had so much to say, so many questions to answer, so, many, so much information to give, that uh, it became a thing of, well, look, you know, I, I appealed to you guys and I said, well, look, if you guys want me to, to do this more and, uh, and, and buy me the time to be able to produce the content I'd like to produce, uh, then, you know, support me through Patreon. And, and thousands and thousands and thousands of creators have done that. So that's uh, th that's not selling fear, right? I think that I think anybody with uh, with a couple brain cells can sort of d differentiate between fear mongering and using hyperbole, using exaggeration, using you know just flat out false information to propagate a position of of fear and distrust and suspicion and paranoia versus general education, right? These are two different things, right? Um, so it's not, you know, all, you know, apples and apples. There's apples and there's oranges, right? Okay, so that all being said, um, I mostly don't like uh, conspiracy fear-mongering because, uh, because of the fact that it, that it preys on people's, uh, generally, I mean, I don't mean this to be like totally insulting or something because I'm just as guilty of it as everybody else but kind of an intellectual laziness that goes with, you know, how we look at information. Um, you know, there's confirmation bias where we will naturally look to information that confirms what we already think. Uh, but also the fact-checking side of things, right? Where you get some information that can be quite alarming and you go, oh, well, it must be true because I read it here or blah, blah, said it or something like that. Not you know, not thinking with the idea that anybody could be making a mistake or could be making an error. And so, you know, you gotta fact check the information that you get. And this is, this is where, of course, critical thinking comes in. So with the Walmart thing, right? Uh, you know, there was this big scare down in Texas uh, earlier this year or last year about, about Walmarts and the National Guard or something or militia being, uh, being out there, you know, in some kind of force and they were using underground tunnels of Walmart or something to shutting Walmarts down and doing some nefarious thing down in Texas. And you just go, really? You know, like, okay, that sounds a little nuts. Well, you dig into it a little more and you find out it is nuts, right? That there wasn't really any substance to that, you know, scary story. And, uh, you know, and there was some drilling going on with the military down there and you kind of go, okay. 
And somebody could look at me and go, well, you're just being intellectually lazy because, you know, who knows what they're really up to. And this is where I kind of get into the, you know, the like, okay, guys, let's, let's calm down a little bit and let's get as, you know, more information, as much as information as possible. And if I'm wrong, prove me wrong, but don't prove me wrong by sending me some link to some, you know, wild ass person who's doing the fear mongering like Alex Jones and say, oh, well, Alex Jones said it, so it must be true. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm never going to give Alex Jones any credibility because I've already spent years debunking Alex Jones's claims, not one or two or three of them. I'm talking on the order of about 50 of them. So there comes a point where you just go, that source of information is, is kind of dead to me now, right? I don't, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not just, I'm just not going to accept information from that line of, of country, right? Maybe that's an error on my part. Maybe I shouldn't be so uh, biased against somebody like Alex Jones, but it's kind of the boy who cried wolf, right? Over and over and over and over, every single time, the guy has been lying. So you just go, okay, I'm done. I'm done listening to you. So that's why I feel like there are plenty of reasons to have um, suspicions, plenty of reasons to look more deeply into things. But I think with, um, you know, with channels that are selling fear, selling paranoia, I tend to just kind of discount them out of hand because of the, what's the goal of that channel? What is it that they're trying to do? And, uh, and for what purpose are they creating, you know, those, those videos? And what is their incentive for doing so, right? That's uh, a way, maybe not the perfect way, but it's a way to grade information and grade the quality of the information you're getting. And maybe... Um, live a slightly less paranoid life as a result. At least that's, that's how I kind of look at it. LAFC 92. When you were still in the church and someone showed you a pack of information on an SP or a hate website, would you and others not think it was strange slash unethical slash illegal that they were using what was supposed to be confidential information? Would you at the time where you were still fully in ever be scared that someone would look and or use your confidential information given in auditing. Well, here's the thing. When I was being shown what were called dead agent packs in Scientology, which are packs of information put together about uh, stories or individuals who are anti-Scientology or have been speaking out against Scientology in order to make that person seem uncredible. That's basically the point of a dead agent pack is to make the person not believable, catch them out in lies and, and, uh, and, and dishonesty. Because if they're lying about that, then they're probably lying about this too, right, would be the idea. Um, when I was shown those sorts of packs, one, I had a vested interest in believing them because I wanted Scientology to be true. I wanted it to be real. So I would give more credence to the information than I really should have. I didn't really uh, you know, view it with a critical eye. Um, but two, I didn't know that what I was being shown came necessarily from the person's auditing sessions. It's not like it was labeled that way. The, here's, a, you know, here's a piece of information about this person. You know, Sally Sue um, you know, was a prostitute 
uh, before she joined Scientology or something. Well, there are multiple places in Scientology that that information could come from besides an auditing session. And when you're in the world of Scientology, these little niceties kind of matter, right? If you go in to talk to an ethics officer because a KR was written on you, that's not confidential. There's nothing going on there that is, that is anyone has to keep a secret necessarily. You would expect that ethics officers would kind of keep their mouths shut, but your ethics file and the ethics information and knowledge reports that are written on you aren't stamped with confidential, priest-penitent, privileged information, right? Your PC folders are. So if something gets over into the ethics space or into the ethics area or into knowledge reports, then it's kind of a free-for-all as to where that information ends up in, in the world of Scientology. And that was always how, where I figured that inf- kind of information was coming from. Uh, life histories, you know, when you come into Scientology, there's an extensive form that is filled out as a staff member, as a Sea Org member, I should say. Public don't necessarily do these life histories until they want to go on to the OT levels. Then they have to do a, a form of a life history as well. But at the lower levels, they don't. Um, but as a staff member, Sea Org member, absolutely they do. And these are, this is, you know, everyone you've ever had sexual activity or relationships with, who your parents, your family, your friends, list them all out. What's your relationship with them? Any diseases, any chronic illnesses, any, your education, where'd you go? What'd you think of it? What's your day-to-day life like? I mean, this is, it's, it's pages and pages and pages of information. Uh, not confidential right? Doesn't necessarily go into your PC folder. It goes into your personnel file as a staff member or Sea Org member. That doesn't have a confidential stamp on it. So point being, when I was shown these DA packs, um, these dead agent packs, I didn't have the idea that I was being shown confidential priest penitent privileged information. Um, never really occurred to me that that's where that, that that was the source of the information, and therefore it never occurred to me that my confidential information that I had divulged in auditing sessions would ever be used against me should I leave Scientology and start speaking out against it. Just really wasn't part of my thought process. Norma May, I've read that many Scientology fundraisers get a commission of ten percent. From your recent interview with Kay Rowe, it sounds as though that is not the case with Sea Org regs, salespeople. Who gets the commissions and who doesn't? Does it depend on whether the person is paying for services, giving straight donations to the IAS, or what? Also, in your interview with Kay, she was joking that Chapter 11 of her book was about fundraising. I'm not completely sure I got the joke. Is it because a person might go into Chapter 11 bankruptcy after being regged so hard and long by Scientology, or did I miss the joke entirely? Yeah, I think he kind of missed the joke because that was just a chapter 11 joke about bankruptcy. Um, Okay, now as far as commissions go, the commission system within Scientology has changed over the years. It's not, there's a, the idea of getting commissions came from L. Ron Hubbard for what he termed field staff members. And I believe I've talked about this before on this channel, but just to review, um, if you're a public person, uh, a public Scientologist, and you get somebody else into Scientology, or you're selling books or materials of Scientology, you get a percentage of that back. The exact percentages have changed over the years. So I'm not going to say, I mean, it's generally 10%, 15%, somewhere around there. 
but um, but I can't say right now off the top of my head what the percentages are because I don't know what the current church's policies are about commissions. I just know that it's a Hubbard policy that people get commissions for bringing people into the churches of Scientology and getting them on to service. And so long as the person you bring in stays on service, you will continue to get that 10 or 15% commission on the services that they buy. So guy comes in, signs up for a beginning introductory class, costs 50 bucks, you get $5, right? Uh, but then he, when he finishes that class, you know, it's in your best interest to be there or push him or egg him on to do the next service, which is maybe, you know, um, $200. And so now you're getting uh, whatever, 10%, you're getting 20 bucks, right, off of that $200 service. And it progresses on and on as people pay for more and more services, so long as they're continually signing up for them. Or if they leave, if you physically bring them back into the building and get them back on service, or you're named as the person who is responsible for getting them back on service as their FSM, that's the, that's the label that you get, then you get a commission from that, right? Now, this was extended to the IAS. L. Ron Hubbard never knew about or, or approved of the International Association of Scientologists as a membership group. That came, that was all done without his knowledge or, or approval because um, Hubbard wasn't into just straight donations for no return. Um, so they, though, implemented a commission system within the IAS in order to, you know, encourage uh, IAS members, or in other words, Scientologists, to sign up other people for the IAS or encourage them to boost people's memberships in the IAS. And so you have people who are dedicated fundraisers, just a handful of them, there's not tons of these people, but they, they go around with the IAS Sea Org members. IAS is all Sea Org pretty much. Um, there's a few staff at the class five level who are membership officers who, who also you know, work to get people to sign up for the IAS memberships. Um, but the, the Sea Org members and the staff members don't get commissions personally for their fundraising efforts. What they get, um, and this was changed I think in the mid-2000s if I'm remembering right, it might have been earlier, it used to be that they would get commissions personally. And staff members and Sea Org members were raking in the bucks when they could do that. They were making good money by getting people to sign up for IAS memberships and making a 10% commission. Well, they were making so much money that they decided, the, David Miscavige in his infinite wisdom, decided that that was completely unacceptable. And so then what happened was the commissions that staff members or Sea Org members would be getting instead went into a pot for the staff pay for that week. And so that commission was then doled out to all the staff. And that was done in an, in an effort to encourage all the staff to get more on board with this and not just leave it up to one or two staff members or Sea Org members who were really good at doing that kind of sales work. Uh, this was to encourage more activity on everyone's part. So yeah, I, do, I believe this was in the early to mid-2000s that that change happened, and it was not a popular change. Um, but it, that's how it went down, and as far as I know, that's still church policy. So, bottom line, individual public Scientologists who go around signing people up for the IAS or boosting their membership in the IAS 
they personally make a commission on that. The staff and the Sea Org members who run around doing that, their commission is not a personal commission. They, they, the per, the, there's a percentage of money that goes from that into the general staff sum and all of the staff benefit from that. But of course, it's a much more watered down commission because you know it's 10% if it's 20 bucks and it goes into the staff pay, that means every staff member is getting like, what, a dollar, 50 cents, you know, something like that, depending on how many staff members there are. So that's how that system works to the best of my knowledge. Uh, at this time. DJC. Hello Chris, I really enjoy your videos on Scientology. After hearing you talk about spirituality, I came across a very interesting story that I think you would be interested in and I would like you to comment on it. It's about a medical procedure called a cardiac standstill and Pam Reynolds' near-death experience when undergoing surgery for a brain aneurysm. Yeah, thanks for asking about this. It was an interesting story. It was an NPR story about a woman who in the early 90s, I think 1991, ended up, uh, she came up with a brain aneurysm in the brainstem, and um, this was leaking. I mean, this was a big problem, and she was a famous music producer, and she was flown down, got this, uh, this very intensive surgery, and went about seven hours long, and it, and it saved her life, uh, where she was put into a hypothermia Fro, you know, freezing kind of, her body temperature was lowered to like 60 degrees or something, at 50 degrees, and um, they, they actually drain the blood out of her head um, in order to get to this aneurysm and cut it out and, or did whatever they did with it, and then, you know, obviously resuscitated her. Uh, they had to flatline her on the operating table, and, um, and she later claimed uh, after waking up and, re and you know, uh, coming back to life and coming back into a, you know, a regular existence, she had to recuperate from this. She later claimed that she had had an out-of-body experience during the surgery. She described the music that was playing. Oh, sorry, one other thing that you should know is that they taped her eyes shut, right, and put tape over her eyes, and they had ear uh, pieces in her ears that had some kind of a booming sound that, that, according to the article, was the equivalent of a jet airliner in volume banging into her eardrums periodically, I guess every few seconds or something, just like boom, boom. And that was somehow um, keyed into uh, their ability from, from, the, from the reaction to the sound or something that told them when she was ready to have the brain drain happen. And something, it was something connected with that. Point being, with those in her ears and her eyes taped shut, there was really no way that she could have possibly seen or heard anything going on in the room around her. It's not like there was any sound coming in through these, you know, her ears, and there was no sight coming in through her eyes. And this went on for seven hours. And yet, she later described the music that was playing, the ho that they were playing Hotel California. She described words that were said, tools that were used, uh, like the brain, um, the bone saw that was used. It was not a saw, like a hacksaw kind of bone saw. It was more like a, something that looked like a dentist drill or an electric toothbrush is how she described it. And, um, and she directly related things that the neurologist who carried out the surgery said and some things that the nurses said during, this, during the procedure. So 
Uh, so the, the question, of course, oh, and then she had this whole out-of-body experience where she met her aunt and uncle or something uh, who had, had obviously been, been passed for a long, long time and uh, spoke with them, interacted with them, and then her uncle kind of pushed her back into her body because uh, she didn't really want to go back. So, uh, so she claimed that all happened, and she wrote a song about it. She was very into it. She really believed it. She died in 2010. Uh, of a heart condition or something, heart failure. So that surgery back in 91 truly was a life-saving surgery, very successful. And, uh, and then, you know, she made these claims. Though there have been different people, uh, an Australian um, anesthesiologist claimed uh, or said from his professional experience that there was no way that any of that could have happened and she was just making it up and hallucinating it and gave various explanations and reasons as to why that would be. Which, when I read them, um, and I did read it all with an open mind, I didn't go into this thinking you know, particularly one thing or the other, although I think anybody would acknowledge that I may have a bias towards you know, the hope of some kind of a spiritual existence, as I've very clearly stated before. So reading his explanations for how she could have hallucinated these things definitely didn't ring very true to me. Um, I wasn't impressed with his debunking, particularly. Um, and to me, it was just kind of a big open-ended question as to what did happen to her or could something spiritual have happened to her. Does it, you know, there are many conclusions you can infer or draw from her stated experience. And I think I tend to go into, well, I'm not drawing any real conclusions based on that. Instead, I'm looking at it as a big question mark and an area that needs further pursuit of, of discovery. More, more research needs to be done on something like that. Because like I said, the debunking on it doesn't really satisfy. So that's my take on it. And I think that um, some others uh, did a little bit of Googling on this, not a lot. And it looks like there are some other neuro people, neurosurgeons or um, neurologists who are kind of interested in this subject and in this area, but it's really hard, of course, to be able to do much in the way of research short of, uh, you know, flatlining people, which is kind of frowned upon in the clinical world, right? Because you don't want to kill people in the pursuit of knowledge. So it's one of those areas that is, you know, how do you research this? How do you look into this? And there have been some stabs at it, and and uh, and I, for me, it's all just kind of a big. Kind of, it, it, this whole story kind of just contributes for me to the question mark of it, right? I don't look at this story and go, "She's delusional," um, because there's too many things that she knew when she should not have. There should have been no way that she could possibly have known those things. Um, and by the way, the neurologist who did the surgery, who was not had zero vested interest in out-of-body experiences or spiritual beliefs or any of that. He, he wasn't involved in that question at all. He merely said, yeah, the stuff she said that she recalled from the surgery, that happened. And there's no way that she should have been able to, to have any knowledge of any of that. So, you know, question mark, question mark. And that's kind of where we leave that. But it's that kind of thing that kind of gives me uh, more hope right? But I'm not going to go all in on that, and I'm not going to, to, to draw conclusions that are not warranted by that information. Um, I, think the, I think the only thing we can really say about that is, huh, that's weird. That needs an explanation, and we need, to, and we need explanations 
of, of that case and cases similar to it that actually ring true. We can't just you know, write it off because we choose not to believe in that uh, because that's not intellectually honest either. So that's my take on it. Mark Hoschild. You mentioned that orgs have stats on how much money is going up from local churches to orgs. I believe you have also mentioned that in a five-state area, there were only a few hundred active church members. Given this very small number of active Scientologists, how much money could these local churches possibly send up? Please forgive me if I am off on your numbers, but I am curious if you have any numbers to give some context on money streams, even if only anecdotal. Do staff end up signing slash paying up for services themselves just to inflate stats or meet quotas, akin to how some parents buy their own kids' Girl Scout cookies, etc., because of pressure? Okay, first off, yes, absolutely staff members definitely end up throwing their own money in the pot in order to raise stats, meet quotas, but more often just to pay bills, right? Because if there's an impending utility bill or mortgage bill or rent payment or something due and the church is going to close or not have lights or not have toilet paper or something like that as a result, then the staff members are going to kick the money in if they can. And usually it's the staff members who have a spouse who's actually working because <laughs> they're not making any money at the church, and but their spouses are at a regular job. And so they've got some, you know, they'll, they'll write a check or put it on the credit card or something like that. And I saw um, executives of Scientology organizations, the local orgs, do this all the time. All the time, right? Because they just were desperate to keep the thing going and keep the show on the road. As far as revenue streams go, this is actually one of the reasons why I believe management of Scientology is sort of pulled in its flippers quite a bit from managing these outer orgs, these class five orgs, right? Um, I'm talking about the city level churches like, you know, the one here in Denver or the one in Twin Cities, which is supposed to serve a five state region around it, right? Um, or, uh, you know, Los Angeles or et cetera, et cetera. I don't think management's really paying a whole lot of attention to these orgs anymore because they're so non-productive in terms of revenue stream. It's really not really worth much of their time because these churches are not making a whole lot of money. They're keeping their doors open and that's about it. I think roughly, roughly 10 to 15% of the income on a weekly basis from these churches is shot up to management and then dispersed from there to the various levels and echelons of Scientology's uh, hierarchy. And so if you have a church that, let's say, makes $5,000 in a week, which is pretty average, five ten, for the city-level churches to be making something like you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 in a week, that's pretty good for those city level, for those class five orgs, right? And if they're averaging, you know, in the 40 to 50 range, that is unbelievable. That's like, what? That was uh, very few organizations, and mostly when uh, in the Western United States, those were all almost exclusively California organizations, like the one in San Jose, uh, was, was kept up a fairly decent range of gross income, maybe 20, 30,000 a week. Um, this was over the time period when I was managing and overseeing orgs. So this was 95 to 2003 is when I had direct statistical information on a week-to-week -week basis. And I don't really have any reason to think it's been, uh, that it's really changed a whole lot since that time. In the statistics that I did see after that, they stayed consistent with what I'm talking about now. So you have, um, you know, the, the areas, the organizations that are in the, um, 
tech area of California, right, which is Mountain View, uh, San Jose, maybe San Francisco. Those guys are making $10,000, $20,000 a week uh, and 10 to 15% of that shooting up the line, right? Um, whereas the smaller organizations, Hawaii, Albuquerque, uh, Salt Lake City, uh, Twin Cities, right? Uh, Denver even. I mean, these were, these were podunk orgs. They were making a couple thousand a week at most. A great week for them was $10,000 in, in gross income. So that really meant, you know what, $1,000, $1,500 going up to management. Um, you know, that's not a lot. And so there's not a lot of flow going up the line, which is why um, Miscavige decided that he needed to concentrate the, uh, or, you know, the whole church on selling books and, and lectures. That was just, a, you know, an immediate, uh, very low cost to produce because they produce them all in-house at their publishing facility. Um, so they can, so they're, you know, they're, they're uh, costing the church pennies on the dollar to produce. And they're, you know, the return is quite a bit more than what these orgs are producing uh, in terms of raw money. Then there's also the straight donations coming through the building fundraising, which is one of the key reasons why the whole ideal org program is so important is because they're making millions on that. And through the, uh, the biggest cash cow for Scientology, though, is the IAS, the International Association of Scientologists. Straight profit. Every, you know, except for that commission I was mentioning, um, it's all just straight up money right into the church's coffers. And, um, and that is where, and they have big whales giving big amounts of money um, for that. And, you, and, they, and also the thing about the IAS is it's an endless source of, uh, of income, right? Because you can keep hitting people for their straight donations week after week, month after month, year after year. You're never done. Because all they're doing is increasing their status level in the IAS, which means they get a, a new button or a new award or a plaque or something, which costs, again, pennies on the dollar, for the church to produce. And, um, and they just, there's just an endless font of, of, of money for the church from that, right? And they have, uh, Tony Ortega has shown by name and number the, these, who these contributors are, right? And these are people with big bucks and they just keep on giving. Um, especially people like Tom Cruise, Bob Duggan, um, you know, some of these uh, people down in South America who just have a lot of money and like to give it to Scientology. So, um, so that's why the IAS would be like the main area that you would really focus your fundraising efforts on and why these churches, yeah, they get pretty short shrift. You know, management of Scientology organizations is all about sucking up as much money from them as possible and sending their parishioners from those local churches to Clearwater, Florida, where they sell the high ticket items like the L Rundown, Superpower, the flag services are, you know, 20% more in price than they are for the same services at the Class 5 orgs. So uh, that's where they really want people going is to Clearwater because they, oh, and also they have to pay for accommodations when they're there, staying on the base. So, so that is the main income line for Scientology. And I hope, I don't know, I, you know, we could talk about this for a really, really long time as far as more of the minutia of it. But I think you know, 
trying to give an overview here of how this kind of works and why I think those churches are are not, not really very important to Miscavige anymore, which is why I think getting new members in and trying to work on getting new people into Scientology is also just not something that's on, that's on Miscavige's radar because he doesn't think it's worth the investment. So there you go. Whoa, it is time for flash answers. Vitamin W. Why was OT8 needed to be done at sea? Because Hubbard said in a lecture somewhere along the line that, um, that it needed to be done off the crossroads of the world uh, in a distraction-free environment where people could just chill and do the level and not have their mind or attention on anything else. And of course, Scientology has completely perverted that because people are fundraised like crazy when they're on the ship. And that is pretty much where all their attention is at on the ship is how, how little can they get away with giving and how, and how do they get out of those fundraising um, uh, interviews. Leo Taxel, was Hubbard affiliated with the Mafia? I have no evidence or uh, reason to think that Hubbard was ever connected with or associated with the Mafia in any way. Paul Cumming, do Scientologists feel obliged to like space jazz or the soundtrack of Battlefield Earth. Seriously, can cognitive dissonance extend that far? Yes, it seriously can, and yes, Scientologists do feel obligated to like everything that has L. Ron Hubbard's name on it. Now, that doesn't mean that deep down in their heart of hearts they really think that, and there are some people who are critical in the church of that stuff, as well as of Hubbard's fiction works, because it's not like you you know, it's not like the church is going to come down on you if you say, hey, look, I didn't really like that story very much. Um, but they will come down on you if you're walking around, you know, going, ah, Hubbard's fiction sucks. It's awful. They might have some words for you at that point. So people generally keep their opinions to themselves about that stuff. Okay, and that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching. If you have any comments, questions, uh, criticisms, good, bad, or sideways, leave them in the comment section below, and I will see them and get to them as quickly as I can. Uh, I try to answer and, uh, and keep up uh, on a, you know, every few days or so, but uh, sometimes it's a little hard, but I, I, I do eventually see all of it. So thanks again for watching, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.